0: Why don't we come out of the gate with a title? Sweet victory. There's no part of that phrase that I dislike. I actually like every part of that title. Sweet victory. Let's read from Psalm 118, beginning in verse 5. Say there when you are there. Pastor Matthew may not have mentioned it, but you may have seen it on a slide. The first song this morning, we call the Great Hallel. It comes from Psalm 113 through 118. The Jews summarized these songs. They sang them as they made their ascent to Jerusalem. Anywhere in the world that a Jew is, when he goes to Jerusalem, regardless of his direction of travel... He is said to be going up because he is being elevated both physically and spiritually. Because he is now ascending, setting his mind on the things that are above. These are the psalms that they sang. Jesus sang them at least three times a year because every Jewish man sang the songs of ascent as they went up to Jerusalem. This morning I want to invite you to a higher plane. I'm convinced that we can live in more of the promise than we are living in currently. I am convinced that we should be done with low living. In Psalm 118, beginning in verse 5, in my anguish, somebody say anguish. anguish. Man, the last few weeks have had their share of anguish. People have been sick. People have been sick. People have been sick. It's been incredible. And yet here we stand. Preach with a bucket behind the pulpit or a Kleenex in your pocket makes no difference to me. Because in my anguish I cried to Yahweh and He answered me. What did He do? He answered me by setting me free. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of Israel, will set you free from your situation. You can sit in despair if you choose. But I choose to call upon the Lord and He is setting me free. Look at the kind of confidence that Psalm 118 inspires. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? When you are confident that the Lord is setting you free, you are unafraid. And when you're unafraid, you are full of faith. Do you want to be full of faith and unafraid? Then we must let the Lord set us free. This morning we're going to talk about the sweet victory that is ours. It is Palm Sunday. It is called Triumphal Entry Sunday. I want to tell you the truth. That's an arbitrary date on our calendar. Our calendar has been divorced from the true standard that is Israel's calendar. Today is actually the 13th of Nisan on Israel's calendar. But we can't do a thing about the nation we were born in and the calendar that is used. The Christians decided in the 3rd century to separate ourselves from all things Jewish. A horrible mistake. A tragic mistake. It is separating us from the victory that should be ours. And yet, there is hope for us. This morning we're going to talk about what happens on the 10th of Nisan, the triumphal entry, the day that Jesus actually entered into Jerusalem. I want to begin with a phrase, Eretz Zavat Chavla Udevash, the land of milk and honey. Oh man, have you ever wondered why Israel is called the land of milk and honey? What a way to describe things. Milk and honey. I've heard many fine sermons on this subject. Much that speaks of the agricultural produce being typified by honey. Saying that honey came from the drippings of ripe dates. And since they grew out of the ground, it was a way to say the ground is fertile. I've heard many wonderful things about the livestock of Israel and the cows on a thousand hills. And yet this morning I saw something entirely different in it. On this Palm Sunday, I want to suggest to you that milk is something that could be studied. That honey is something that could be studied. And as you do, you will find out something unique about the land of Israel, the body of Messiah and the church at large. When we are thinking of milk, Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 11, you should write those down. These are the majorative text of where we get our kosher laws. In other words, the dietary laws. And it turns out that a cow has split hooves. And it also chews the cud. By two witnesses, by two facts, it is established. By faith and action, it is established that a cow is a clean creature. Say clean. Clean. What a good feeling to be clean. Cows weren't made clean. They were born clean. By virtue of the way that God designed them. Since cows are clean, and milk comes from cows, milk was clean. That's not difficult to understand, is it? But the same chapter, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, says something unusual about bees, which is where honey comes from. If an animal has six legs, even if it walks on four of the six, it's unclean. If it is a part of a swarming insect, it is unclean. Well, bees walk on four legs, have six, and they're part of a swarming insect. Bees are unclean. Pronounced by two witnesses. Unclean. The cow is similar to the Jewish people in that it was predestined by God's design and choice to be or become clean. But the bee is not unlike the rest of the world, like you and me. It is pronounced unclean by the way that we were born and the way that we have walked ever since birth. It is expected that a cow brings forth milk and that it would be clean and kosher. The bee, however, is an unclean animal and yet it carries clean, kosher honey. Honey is not the product of a bee. Honey is not digested by a bee. Rather, a bee gathers from the kosher flowers around it unique ingredients that are then assembled within the bee. And the bee simply acts as a conduit that carries it to the honeycomb for the feeding of the colony. Oh my goodness. A land of both milk and honey. I don't care what side of the tracks you were born on this morning. You might have been born as unclean as I was born unclean. Or you may have come from royalty. There is a way for us to be made both clean and useful before the king of kings today. The body of Christ is truly like the land of milk and honey. Jews and Gentiles both now transmit the life nourishing edification of the word of God. This morning... Whether you walk on four legs or two. You have an opportunity to be used by God. On this subject of honey. Psalm 19.10 says something beautiful. It says they are more precious than gold. Than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. Than honey from the comb. There are many fine Bible scholars that say that biblical honey is the dripping Of ripe dates. That it is a paste made from grapes or dates. And this is why Israel is the land of milk and honey. And yet they may be trying to obscure a fact that is hard for them to see. God is able to take the unclean honeybee. And make him a carrier of the clean honey. See it is difficult for the religious world that feels themselves born holy. To understand how you and I can be born again holy. It's hard for them to understand how a man without their pedigree can minister in a way that shows God's pedigree. And yet this morning, we're going to talk about the sweet kind of victory that will not be denied. Someone who gathers the kosher Parts and assembles the sweet honey. He said sweeter than honey, the honey from the... Does that sound like it came from a date to you? The Word of God is likened to the sweetness of something that was produced right out of an unclean animal. I think the only thing the Lord loves more than the children that are already in the pen are the sheep that He searches for and finds. Oh, he rejoices greatly over the one lost sheep. He rejoices over the one who was dead and is now alive. This doesn't disparage the 99 that had him always. But there is a danger for those 99 that they not look down on God's honeybee. Consider Rahab. She could be called a whore, a disreputable woman. Perhaps many bad things could be said about her. Joshua 2.21 contains this statement from her. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied a scarlet cord in the window. Rahab was an unclean Gentile. She was born wrong. She was walking wrong. But she became a carrier of the lineage of Christ. God will take the unclean and make them vessels of transmission for his very word of God become flesh. Tell me that there is no hope for you who are in anguish. If you are in anguish today over your condition, he will set you free. You will know that he is with you and that man cannot harm you. No matter where you were born, what you have done to this point, what you struggle with now, today can be a day of sweet victory. Consider the Gibeonites in Joshua 9 in verse 26. So Joshua... Save them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place God would choose. And what, and that is what they are to this day. The Gibeonites were born unclean, even when they met the king of Israel or hear the great prophet of Israel. They told unclean lies. Come on now. Has anybody made a mistake since meeting Jesus? Anybody sinned while in the house of God? Nevertheless, they became useful to and included among God's people. One of them was even included in David's 30 mighty fighting men. We won't read it today, but for your notes, write down First Chronicles 12... In verse 4, and you will find a Gibeonite among David's finest soldiers. How about Deborah? Deborah's name means be. That's interesting, isn't it? If you want to think of the kind of example... ...of a honeybee made holy. I know cows are holy. I heard my father say it my whole life. <laughs> holy cow. <laughs> Consider Judges, the fourth chapter in verse 9. Very well, Deborah said. Very well, the little bee said. I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So the little bee went with Barak to Kadesh. Deborah was in an unclean situation. She didn't want to usurp male authority, but there was no male who would rise to lead. So she did the only thing available to her. She carried the very great word of God, just like her name is bee and carries honey. You know, can anybody name her husband? He's just a few verses before this. It's a beautiful word, right? Like just stands right out there and says, Leader, Lapidos. Yeah, like, okay. Put verse 1 on the screen. She's actually introduced this way and nobody knows it. Uh, verse 2. <coughs> 4. <laughs> Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. And nobody knew his name, huh? Could it be that your spiritual walk is so sad, so pathetic, that it makes your wife look like a prophetess when compared to you? The answer is not for Deborah to shine less brightly. The answer is for Lapidoth to get out of somebody's lap. He needs to stand up. He needs to take charge of what God has given him. He has an extraordinary wife that is supposed to be a helpmate. And instead, he's laid down in obscurity in the scripture. You know, we see Deborah as pleading with Barak. Oh, you should go. But I bet she had that discussion with her husband first. Because that's how God has ordained that conversation to take place. Guys, you ought not be intimidated if your wife shines brightly, but you ought to feel compelled to shine that much more brightly. She's given to you as a help, an encouragement, to be the very man of God you were called to be. Deborah does not need Lapidus to be a dog for her to shine brightly. In fact, her shining brightly was meant to make Lapidus that much more of an attractive figure in the Bible. And yet it goes down in relative obscurity. Deborah was a honeybee. She took the very best of an unclean situation. She told the truth. She carried the word of God, and a woman did receive victory. Somebody say hello for Yale. Amen, Susie? I love the women of this church. They are beautiful. But they are also warriors. And they pick up the word of God and they go to work. Husbands, don't you dare be lazy. Amen. Don't you dare sit back and make your decisions carnally and expect your spiritual wife to follow you. Yes. Let not the only verse that you can find in the Bible be one from, from Ephesians that says that she should submit to you. If you have the nerve to put your finger on that verse, you better have a handle on the rest of the book. But husbands, if you will stand up and lead, what could you do with a Deborah by your side? What would have happened if the men of Israel had taken her word seriously and obeyed what she said because it was not her word but was the word of God? I'm going to take just a minute here and tell you that in the Bible when you eat something, it's said to be placed in your mouth. That's not a big shocker, right? As food is placed in the mouth, here comes the shocker. God's word, or the words of anybody else, are actually figuratively placed in your ear. To us, a word is an intangible thing. It's just like a concept. But to the Jew, a word had form. It had shape. It had weight. So words were placed in someone's ear. That word that she gave didn't originate with her. It came from a higher authority. She simply transmitted it like God's honeybee. That task was given to the heads of households before any other. Listen to me, LCM. You men need to step it up because you married amazing women. You don't need them to step down for you to shine brightly. You need to get busy and shine that much more brightly. Together, the two of you will overcome thousands. But your job is more than sitting on the lazy boy. Your job is more than bringing home a paycheck. Your job is more than spiritual lethargy. Your job is to lead the home. If you married a honeybee and you enjoy the honey, you better stand up and lead. How about Mr. Samson? He'll help me get out of trouble. In Judges 14 and verse 9, which he scooped out with his hands. And ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents. He gave them some. And they too ate it. But he did not tell them. That he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. You know this story. He's wandered into a field. That is not supposed to be in a vineyard. Nazarites are not supposed to be among the vineyards. And a lion has come out and attacked him. And he tore it apart. As a man could tear a young goat apart. Sometime later, he happened to be back in the vineyard, again in the place he should not be. Nobody's falling away ever occurs in a single day. It is always a long process. It could be that the things you think you have gotten away with are actually a noose wrapping around your neck right now. But praise be to God. Samson's life that was being devoured by Philistines and his own lust became kind of a metaphor in this lion. Out of Samson's own mouth came a poem. Out of the eater something sweet. Out of the very situation that had been devouring Samson, God would use it to put him in a situation where God could devour his enemies. See, the Philistines that had so taunted Samson the Philistine women that he could not get away from. They were his downfall. He was asleep in a whore's lap. He lost his eyes. He lost his spiritual sight. He was put as a common slave, grinding away at the millstone. But the grace of God placed him in the center of a Philistine temple. Out of the eater was about to come something sweet, a sweet victory. Because the man's last prayer was a good one. Just one more time, Lord. Just one more time would you strengthen me and allow me to get revenge for that which has been eating me my whole life. I want to tell you if you were devoured by your bad choices this morning. If you sit here and feel spiritually impotent, weak, impuny. If you have been kicked around by the world and victorious is not how you would describe your life, this morning out of what has been eating you can come something very sweet, a very sweet victory. Amen. The Lord did not require the honeybee to be a cow to produce honey, He just required him to accept from the kosher flower and transmit to the colony's honeycomb. This morning, he will fundamentally change your nature. This morning, the situation that has been eating you up can be eaten up by the Lord. One of my favorite subjects, though, would be Jonathan. Go to 1 Samuel 14. y'all are awful quiet this morning. Maybe we should hold a prayer meeting and see if we can prophesy to you what's been eating you up. Would y'all like to do that on a microphone? Yeah, nobody answered in the affirmative, huh? We can leave it between you and the Lord right now, but you need to know something. The Lord will not leave it between the two of you Always. There is a day coming when it will be exposed before even the angels in heaven. How much better is it to get it right now? If you have believed the lie that says that the appearing of Christ is a big reward ceremony, you are sadly misinformed. It is a reward for those who were faithful to him. There is recompense for those who were not. It will be taken out of their very flesh, their disobedience. In other words, those who have been wicked in this life will be repaid in this life for their wickedness at His return. You should read Psalm 58 sometime. It's extraordinary. No man ever will get a sin. God cannot be mocked. Even in the Newer Testament, which some people view differently. In 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this comment. We must all say all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive what is due us in the body whether good or bad. Is something eating your lunch today? Something been dogging you? Some sin that you've not been able to put underfoot in the way that you should? This morning can be sweet victory. In Jonathan's life, 1 Samuel 14... Beginning in verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father had bound the people with an oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened or he was revived. An alternate reading says the leadership of Israel at the time of Jonathan was horrific a misguided king who actually pronounced a curse upon the people for eating before they would go to war. Somebody say that's stupid. (laughs) That's pretty stupid. Jonathan was unaware of the curse that had been pronounced. But other times he was aware of his father's disapproval and he did what was right anyway. I'd like to believe that if he had known he still would have done it. And he couldn't get to the honeycomb or else why did he use his staff see the staff represents the staff of faith that which reaches what you cannot reach there was a swarm of bees around the honeycomb sometimes the problem with the carriers of the honey is the carriers of the honey like one famous pagan who is now certainly in hell said i've examined your jesus and him i like It's his followers I have a problem with. You know what that means? They can't get to the honey for the honeybee. The carrier's the problem. See, the problem with those bees that carry the honey is they also carry a terrible sting. Has there been more stinging than sweetness in your life? There's supposed to be a sweet victory. We're not supposed to leave welts on those around us. It happens. I've done it more than I want to. More than I'm going to tell you about today. But you have to admire Jonathan's faith. When considering the unclean bee that carries God's clean honey, you may admire Jonathan for using his staff of faith to reach past the swarms of bees and receive the honey or the word that revived him. What will it take this morning for you to receive a word from God? Will I get in your way? Maybe it would be easier if we were in a larger setting. Maybe it would be easier if the pastors and their wives looked a little more like Ken and Barbie. Maybe it would be easier if we picked you up in your car, from your car with a golf cart. Maybe it would be easier If we gave you a gift certificate to come in, maybe it would be easier if we held a raffle (laughs) or stretched a high wire across the stage and had Frenchmen in tights entertain you. All things being done in the body of Christ today. Most of them will occur somewhere in this state. Somewhere in this state next weekend. Oh, I know, it would be easier if we rained out of a helicopter candy for you. But faith reaches past the swarms of bees, and it sees the honey within the comb. It looks past the uncleanness of the vessel and sees the sweetness of the message. You've probably never had a clearer example of that than this ugly honeycomb standing before you today. But what God has invested in me is His Word. Church, somewhere in our lives, we have to look and go, I'm not occupying as much of the promise as I would like. Somewhere in our lives, we have to look and say, today is the day it changes. No more carnal decisions. If you choose your job based on how much money it offers you, then your God is your money. If you choose the location of your home, Based on your job, then your job is your God over your home. Well, it seemed like the most natural thing to do. Everything that comes naturally to you is carnal. You know who's supposed to determine the times and places you would live and work? The God of the universe. That's just not very practical. Serving Him rarely is. It is powerful though. You have to decide whether you want to live comfortably within carnal Christianity or you want to kick down the gates of hell. But as for me and my household, we are going after the lost sheep. I don't want to go a respectable distance in the eyes of my peers. That's not enough for the King of Kings. I want to give him the full reward for his suffering. He deserves all of our obedience. Look, I never speak to you about tithing. But I just want to tell you, if you're measuring your tithe by what you give to God, while that may sound like the most reasonable thing in the world, I think you are sorely missing the boat. What if he is measuring you by what you keep for yourself, not what you give? How long can you say everything belongs to him while well, making sure you have everything you need and giving him out of what is left over. As we move on to the importance of the triumphal entry, let's look one more time into the sweetness of God's word and its intended result regarding honey. Look at Psalm 119, verse 103. <coughs> How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I, therefore, I, therefore, I hate every wrong path. If you live in the word of God, if the honey of the word of God is reviving your soul as it was Jonathan, you learn to hate the wrong path, not be entertained by it. Not consider it, not meditate on it, not set it aside only reluctantly. You hate every wrong path. So take an honest assessment of your life right now. Do you hate every wrong path? Or like Winston Churchill said about America's entry into World War II, do you only do the right thing after you've exhausted exhausted every other effort? If you're about to get divorced and you came to this church, praise God, it's not too late. But you do need to ask yourself, why did you wait till you were about to get divorced? If it is now judgment upon you this day, why did you wait until judgment? Because you don't hate every wrong path. And then you need to make very careful attention to something. Did you come here so that we would validate what you are already doing that you yourself know is wrong? Or did you come here to find the right path? I'm not a pastor that can be twisted to your liking. The Word of God has instructed us. We hate every wrong path. We love you, but we hate the wrong path. Do you know why? We've seen its end, which is destruction. So I'm going to camp here one more time. Husbands, stand up and lead your home. Don't resent your wives if they're spiritual people. Loathe your flesh that has kept you from shining as brightly as you're supposed to. Tear your clothes. Humble yourself. Ask the Lord to help you. He will raise you to the position you were supposed to be in. He will do it because it is His placement for you. The scripture so clearly declares that the head of every woman is man. You don't have a choice. It doesn't say if you're a good husband or a bad husband. It says it is what you are. Now you have to be that. It's not that she needs to go to church less, she needs to pray less, she needs to speak less. It's that you need to step it up. This is not a church where we put up with pansy believers. And above all, we don't do it in men because you are not a man if you do not cling to the Word of God. You're something far less. But if you'll cling to the Word of God, just like that Gibeonite that made it into David's mighty fighting men, oh, wow. A lot of people hate the masculine message of holiness. They would rather some neutered version. But it's no version at all. The truth is is that the Word of God was meant to cause men to lead their homes. It was also supposed to cause the woman to rise to help the man in every way in what had become their joint calling. Cherished, indispensable helpmates. Does your home function like that? Or does your wife drag you to church like you're a little boy? Today could be your sweet victory oh, you don't have to like me. I'm just the bee. But you have to know that what I'm saying is the sweet honey from God. And if you don't like that, then you don't like him because he would say the same thing to your face. Amen. Let's go to Luke 19. Tell me when you get to Luke 19. It's not unusual for me to pick a fight in church. In fact, when I was a little boy, I was supposed to be confirmed in this dead religion that my parents were drawing me to. They, they brought me there because in this church they felt no conviction and uh, they were in horrific sin. They weren't married and a lot, lot of problems there. And uh, so in some strange twist of irony, they put me in classes to be confirmed in this robe and ritual ordeal. And um, I learned the Apostles' Creed. I learned to say Sola Scriptura. I learned to uh, mimic back the things that the priest was saying to me without ever getting very close to the priest who struck me as not quite a normal man. (laughs) He was later caught in a homosexual sting in our hometown. So I don't say that lightly. I'm telling you the truth. And on the morning of our confirmation... Right? It's an interesting thing when men want to confirm you in Christ. The Spirit of God is what confirms you in Christ. And men without the Spirit have no power to confirm you or deny you. I'm not the hero of the story we're about to tell. In fact, there's only villains in it. So we brought out a, a puppet show because that's, uh, that's how we, we, we got confirmed. It was our job, yeah. It was our job to put on a display... For the church, and since nobody actually loved the word of God, we we went for puppets. So there's a black screen, right? Cloth, and we got our little hands up there doing whatever people do at puppet shows. The problem is that Scott Carson and I didn't like each other very much. And with the puppet still on my hand, He may have rammed his forehead into my puppet. And we rolled out onto the stage and down the steps at at a particular church. (laughs) And I didn't get confirmed that day. Whether you were a holy cow or an unclean bee, If you will let the Lord do his work in you, he can make you a carrier of his word and a producer of life-giving substances for the rest of the world. I'm a child of drug addicts. Worse than that, I was not a good one. I mean, I was not the overachieving child making up for my parents' faults. And the Lord picked me anyway. I have to believe that you're here this morning. Because he is drawing you. Parts of that might include repulsion. There may be moments you really don't like me. If that hasn't happened yet, it probably will. There are moments I really haven't liked the things that a medical doctor had to say to me. You know, they have about a thousand ways to say you're fat. Corpulence, robust, rotund. Adipose tissue. There's a really hidden gem. Yeah. Body mass index is high. Yeah, they don't even say it out so that you got to go look it up. Right? BMI. But you count on them to tell you the truth when others don't tell it. Our job in this house is to love you, to walk honestly with you, to prepare you for your works of service, and to do that, we have to tell you the truth. We have to. So, Well, I wish you'd come tell me privately. No, you don't. It's much better like this. And if All 150 of you come and say, Pastor, was that about me? What is my answer, church? Yes, Yes, it was about you. That's my answer every sermon, every time anyone asks. So I am speaking about you, to you, in front of everyone else because I think it's the most honest way to do it. In Luke 19, we see a dramatic picture of King Jesus. Starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. I could just pause on that. What do you know Jericho as? It's the first city that needed to be conquered in the promised land. It is the beacon, the symbol, the Empire State Building or the Twin Towers of the promised land. And Jesus has entered it and is passing through. Why is he passing through? Well, pick up with me in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus entered Jericho, passing through on his way to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell them, The Lord needs it. Then those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Very interesting prospect, isn't it? I'm going to borrow your car today and just tell you the Lord needs it and see how that works. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. <clears throat> the colt is what kind of animal? Can you eat a donkey? You mean to tell me that the sweet honey that is the word of God is now seated upon an unclean animal, making his entrance to Jerusalem? I said, well, pastor, you're allowed to sit on an unclean animal. You're just not allowed to eat one. I know, but Jesus said that you were supposed to eat him. And they found that offensive. To eat the word of God, the flesh of the Son of Man, was more offensive to them than to eat a donkey. Which is interesting since we are supposed to eat the sweet honey that is the word of God and we're not supposed to eat the donkey. Religion is very good at making rules and very bad at creating meaningful relationships. If you are letting doctrine master you, it was meant to serve you. Doctrine will make a slave out of you if you are not careful and it will separate you from the truth that God wants to reveal to you. I bet I spend more time studying doctrine than anyone else in this room. And yet it has not mastered me to the extent that I can see nothing beyond it. I don't know where all of the areas are that keep you from growing. But I suspect in this room we have a lot of fear that keeps us from taking new steps. And we've erected a few puny doctrines to keep us from going further. You know that the Word of God clearly says that the Holy Spirit is for all men. If you then know, you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will my Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to all who ask? How do we sit and cross our arms when we're supposed to be reaching out and asking? Well, that happens when we've decided not to lead when we've decided not to go after God, not to experience sweet victory, but we've made a doctrine our master. It's extraordinary the charred flax that holds people back in the kingdom. Has an offense held you back? Somebody, one time in a galaxy far, far away, did something to you that hurt you, and that is preventing you from being who you're supposed to be today? How sad. The kingdom of God is made up of mighty men of valor. Can you say mighty men? Mighty men. If you come on Monday night, I'm going to teach you more about that. But there was not a single person who failed to cross the Jordan when Joshua led them. And they were all called mighty men of valor. You know why? Because that's what the kingdom's made of. Mighty men of valor. There's not a single room, not one place, not one seat reserved for a coward. Not one. In fact, the book of Revelation clearly says God hates cowards. They will not make it into a city. I was once a coward. And then his honey revived my soul. And I found courage I didn't know was there. When the word says to you, be strong and courageous, it's a real intangible word. He's not just saying it to you. He is literally putting it inside of your ear. It's your job to get it from your ear to your heart. And do you know how you'll know when it's in your heart? When it's coming out of your mouth. If you are not speaking the words of God regularly in your home, it's because they're not in your heart. And if they're not in your heart, it's because you haven't let God put them in your ears. This is how this works. By the way, you can't take the promised land with your ears. You must take it with your feet your faith is going to have to express itself in action. Be thinking about what sweet, victorious action you can take today as we move through this. I'd intended to teach you more about Luke 19. I even thought that I may teach you about Matthew 21. But now I have changed my mind and decided to teach you about the book of Joshua. While we're on our way to the book of Joshua... Let me just say this. The psalms that they were singing, the same psalms that Matthew was singing this morning, they end in 118. Matthew then quotes Psalm 118, the writer Matthew and the writer Luke, several times. And they do because this was the culmination of their praise. Their praise caused them to arrive at Jerusalem, the place they were supposed to be. Jesus in Jerusalem is quoting Psalm 118. And 18, because it's been on everybody's minds. He is now the Word of God who has shown up on the triumphal entry. It is the 10th of Nisan on this day. That becomes important because on the 10th of Nisan, you chose lambs to bring into your home. You examined those lambs inside of your home on the 10th of Nisan to see if there was any defect in them. Every day from the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan, the Scripture declares that Jesus went into the temple so that they could examine Him. He spoke the words between the 10th and the 14th of Nisan, If any of you can prove me guilty of sin, point it out. He invited their inspection of Him. When they left the temple, they went home to their houses. And in their houses, there was a little lamb that was also being Inspected. On the 14th of Nisan, Jesus (coughs) was killed at twilight along with all of the other lambs of God. With that in mind, let us go to Joshua. Joshua 4. As I have been studying the book of Joshua, I'm amazed. I think it is incredible to see the ways in which Joshua foreshadows Jesus' work. His first and his second coming. A few regarding the second coming. Joshua sent out two spies. Jesus has two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Joshua's military campaign was based on seven trumpets. Jesus' military campaign is based on seven trumpets. Joshua defeated an enemy led by an antichrist king. Jesus defeats an enemy led by an antichrist king. Both Jesus and Joshua's reign, their second coming rather, their military campaign is estimated to be seven years. It's as if Jesus, a second commander-in-chief, Someone like Yehoshua dispossesses the planet Earth of its usurpers. Sending in two witnesses, then a series of judgments based on seven, finally defeating the kings with the sun and the moon obeying him and the kings hiding in caves. When you read Joshua, you are reading about future events. Now what is interesting about those future events is if Joshua is foretelling the future and he is here and many of the events that he is telling are here at the second coming some of the events were foretold here at the first coming when you see that you can learn both backwards and forwards from Joshua's work you can look and go, wow, Joshua foreshadows Jesus in the end. He foreshadows Jesus at the first coming. What can I learn about the first coming from Joshua? And in Joshua, the fourth chapter, we see something pretty interesting. Look at verse 17, 417. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. It is the tenth of Nisan when the people... Cross the Jordan. Why is that important at all? Let's talk Jordan for a minute. The Jordan River begins in northern Israel. And it descends from the foothills of Mount Hermon. And it comes all the way down to southern Israel. To a place that we call the Salt Sea. It is a river that begins and ends in Israel. Salvation begins and ends in Israel. They crossed the Jordan from its eastern bank to its western bank coming into the promised land. Jesus returns to the promised land from east to west. These things are pretty easily demonstrated in the Word. Find someone in the Acts chapter 2 class and they will share with you 120 examples of things that begin in Israel and end in Israel that exemplifies salvation. The reason that I'm saying this today, though, is most people, when they view the cross, they view the Passover, they say, that's the moment we gained victory. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. Okay, I will give you that it is the moment that you first saw victory. But it's very much like the first step of faith that crossed the Jordan River. When you cross the Jordan River, it's the first time you have stepped in the promises of God. But do you know what still remains to be done? You have to go in and drive out all the inhabitants of the land. A man who has gone to the cross and said, I've been forgiven, I've been forgiven, has taken his very first step of faith in his entire walk. But he still has to drive out all the rest of the inhabitants of the land. Or the story would end on the west bank of the Jordan before the fall of Jericho or the conquest of Ai or fighting for the Gibeonites' salvation or defeating the Antichrist king or gaining what was promised. And this is where most Christians are. We believe that because Jesus is like the Jordan River, salvation beginning and ending, that when we went through the Jordan, that's all that had to be done. The truth is, is something else is happening in this verse. (coughs) They come out of the Jordan. And when they come out of the Jordan, look at chapter 5 and verse 10. actually pick up in verse 7. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still circumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated Passover. What is happening in Israel during the first century is people accepted the lamb into their city. They cried out, Hosanna, save us. But they had no idea what it would take to save them. They received King Jesus Son of David! Son of David! Glory in the highest! Luke says, Peace in heaven! But they had no idea what they were saying. They are receiving Jesus, but they don't know what receiving Jesus means. And when they find out about the bloody crucifixion, the same crowd that received Him now rejects Him. This is very much... Like crossing the Jordan on the 10th. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. And then you find out what has to die. That you have to be circumcised. That there are still battles ahead of you. And you decide to camp back there somewhere between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion. Are you following me? What Israel was supposed to be doing between the 10th and the 14th was circumcising their hearts. The same way that Joshua circumcised every fighting male in Israel. Before they could go in and take the land, salvation was a process for them. They first had to set foot in the land. Then they had to be circumcised in their heart. Then they actually had to go to battle trusting God. And every time they did, they would win. Listen to me, Christian soldier. It is not enough to simply say you have trusted Jesus. That is so easy to say. People have come in this church and sat down and said that more times than I can count. They've said that they've prayed a prayer. I'm thrilled for you. If that prayer did not result in the circumcision of your heart, the ever dying of self and taking up the sweetness of God's word, if it did not put you on the path to battle, then you have not been saved. You have simply gotten to the doors of salvation. You have made... As one elder put it, the starting line, the finish line. There is no sweet victory at the starting line. The sweet victory is after the long agonizing race. When you can say, I have fought the fight of faith. Or as Pastor Sutherland put it, I have strategized the good strategy. I have agonized the good agony. When you can say, in faith, I have faced the walls of Jericho without swords. I have gotten up from my failure at I, and I have watched the sun, the moon, and the stars obey God's voice in the valley fighting for Gibeon. Well, then you might be able to say that. But to make crossing the Jordan salvation is as absurd as it would be to say that when they crossed the Jordan, they had all the victory they would ever need. And yet that is exactly what the body of Christ has done. And so on triumphal entry Sunday... All of the messages will be preached about the victory of the cross and the failure of the Jewish people. Meanwhile, those who are Christians sitting in the seat will have failed to do anything since they met Jesus at the cross. (coughs) Entering the land is the first part of the victory. Driving the inhabitants out of you is what is full victory. Have you ever read that without holiness no one will see the Lord? Do you believe that it's true? When I hear Joshua 10, I know that it speaks of future events and yet my gut tells me it will speak to you today. It happened in the past and it will happen in the future. It happened in the past, will happen in the future, but can happen for you right now. Would you like to finish this message in Joshua 10 with me? The rest of you, would you like to? Yes. I was sitting in a church and a pastor was preaching a message not all that unlike this one. He was as rough of a honeycomb as I am. And the guy sitting next to me was tall and beautiful and a fundraiser for a local church. He had the name of a famous football coach from LSU. He was his son. And... Uh, he leaned over about this point in the sermon and he whispered in my ear, is there a, is there another door? Because the only exit was in full view of everyone in the room that he knew of. There was another door, but I rehabbed. <laughs> is there another door? Nope. <laughs> and a man who was six foot five looked more like six inch five inch. you know I mean just reduced by the word of God his ministry was called Omega Man it's like a vitamin since then there's probably a hundred other people with that ministry name and I'm sure I'm not talking about them and unless it happens to be this guy And I always wondered what caused him to shrink so from the truth when others were so encouraged by the truth. Then I realized it's true for all, pride. His pride would not allow him to admit that he had been wrong and accept the truth. So he simply looked for another way. Didn't even want to leave in front of everyone. I know that I'm an impolite person The gospel is often impolite It doesn't wait for you To decide that you want to hear Would like to hear Or are ready to receive The truth is the truth And it stands unabated Despite your opinion of it Despite your acceptance of it It will never move for you The sooner we come to realize that the faster we are willing to move because of the truth. And as long as there are weak-willed sisters, just popularity pundits pouring out their trash to people every week, acting as if the gospel is a movable target and will be whatever you would like it to be, we distort the truth. What we want for you this morning is for you to see the standard, to run for it. We acknowledge we have cows and bees in here. But we're all after something. The land of milk and honey. Joshua was after it. He would not be denied it. Pick up with me in chapter 10 and verse 1. <coughs> Forgive me for that. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it. Doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king... And that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city. Like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I and its men were good fighters. Just to be clear, why is Adonai Zedek upset? Because Gibeon has been allowed to join with Joshua. Now we can talk for a long time about whether Gibeon should have been allowed to join Joshua. I don't know whether I should have been included in the Christ in Christ or not, but it's too late. I'm already here. I would have excluded me, but praise God, my salvation was in realizing that I am not the judge, the very fact that saved me. Gibeon threatened. Adonai Zedek and Adonai Zedek attacked Gibeon you wonder why you're attacked you want to know why so many homes in this church have been sick you want to know why so many people in this church have been fighting with fiery darts from the enemy because he is threatened by your very existence because this church is reaching around the world I went to see Ray in the hospital the other day sweet baby Ray who's turned into a powerful man of God. We have to find a new name other than sweet baby Ray. It, it, it's meant with all the affection in the world, but we need a more warrior-like. Uh, we'll, we'll base it on Ludvigsen, you know? That, that'll help. <laughs> Sitting in a hospital bed with gallstones, he was victorious. Bible out, smile on. The Lord had been dealing with him about how he wanted to finish life. Hospital beds are a good place to do that. Been speaking with him about the need to lead his home, about standing up in power. You know, it is an interesting thing that God can put you in a situation where the very attack against you becomes something that is saving you. It's almost like he can bring honey out of a lion's carcass. Out of what was trying to eat you comes something sweet. Friends, for the Christian, everything is sweet. The hard sermon, the hard obstacle, everything is sweet. And why is it sweet? Because it drives you closer to the conquering king, Joshua, Jesus. So Adonai is a word that means Lord. Zadek is a word that means righteousness. We have a false king of righteousness who is angry because Joshua has made a treaty with people that probably don't deserve it. Are you feeling me yet? Verse 3. So Adonai, Zadok, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. The enemy never wants a one on one battle. So he always piles on. He says things like, well, everybody thinks. Everybody says. Do you know what they said about you? Do you know what we think? It's always plural. It's always plural because he doesn't want a one-on-one confrontation. He goes and finds as many people as he can to gang up on you. And even when they don't agree, he says that they do. Tell me I'm wrong. You sit around... And the lie that is coming from the devil and the devil alone, all of a sudden, you're pretty sure everybody thinks this about me. Everybody's. And it drives you from fellowship. It steals your joy. It beats you up. And the truth is, nobody was thinking it. Happens all of the time. The false king of righteousness, the antichrist like spirit, gathers as many people in opposition to you as they can find. Beginning to see why fellowship is important? Verse 5. Then the king of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. Just to make sure we have a five-on-one situation. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. You know, this is not an ideal time for God's people. They had just performed this little surgery that uh, probably caused some pain. (coughs) But Joshua doesn't ignore the cry of somebody he's in covenant with. You know... If the people of Israel between the 10th of Nisan and the 14th of Nisan were circumcising their hearts, the first thing they would notice is that they had allied with false kings of righteousness. They would notice that they had actually moved against what God was doing on the earth. First thing that would have to die is pride. As I'm talking to you today, I hope you're able to identify areas that you're moving against what God is doing. I want to put a few on a screen here for you that were pulled from the ancient text. Joy, this is that last slide. The first one, the king of Jerusalem. said, well, Jerusalem's a godly city. Not in this story, it's not. Adonai Zedek had aligned with the king. So the city that was the city of peace was now on the wrong side. Do you know what that means? Something's trying to steal peace. Then Hebron. Hebron, that's a city in Israel. It's a good city, yeah, but it's in enemy hands. Hebron means community or fellowship. Is something trying to keep you from the community or fellowship? Jarmuth. Height or elevation. This speaks of your calling. Is there something that is trying to hold you back from your calling? Lachish. Lakish means invincible. Is something trying to steal your spiritual strength? Eglon, young bull. In the ancient world, a young bull is a sign of confidence. Misplaced or not, confidence. These are the five kings that ally against Joshua and the Gibeonites. I think God allowed them to ally against Joshua and the Gibeonites because... In their defeat, which we're going to read about here in just a second. In their defeat, you would find out that you can defeat everything that tries to steal your peace. You can defeat everything that keeps you from fellowship. You can defeat everything that would try to prevent your calling. You can defeat everything that would steal your strength. Most of all, you can defeat everything that would steal your confidence. There's a sweet victory for us. Out of this terrible situation, five kings ganging up on one people, something sweet is going to happen. This story seems unclean because it's a war and a difficult one, but in the end there's honey in it for you. Church, is worth asking you, are you fighting with any of these five cities? Have they come to occupy your territory? Are you in right order with God and man? That's what Jerusalem means. A city in right order with God and man. A city of peace. Are you in peace? Or has some false king of righteousness stolen your peace? (coughs) Are you a part of this community? So I'm a part of the larger body of Christ. Well, if you're a part of the larger body of Christ, then why aren't you a part here? Can't have it both ways. If you're a part of the larger body of Christ, then you ought to most of all be a part of the local body of Christ. People who say those kind of things, they show where their heart really is. I want to be here but unaccountable. Community is accountability. Fellowship is accountability. We're not each other's policemen. We're each other's savior. The Jesus and us... Will help pull up your struggle. We're little bees carrying the honey of God. Is something trying to separate you from the community? How about Jarmuth? How high is your calling? You remember? Remember the height from which you have fallen? How high is your calling? Is something keeping you from elevating your position in Christ today? How long will you let it hold you back? How long will you simply acknowledge there is a problem without doing something about the problem? Has something stolen your strength? Did you walk in here today and say, I I just can't take not one more thing? Just just not one more thing? What makes the men of God, mighty men of valor that cross the river, feeble? What could do that? The only time they ever lost was when they had made themselves liable to destruction by harboring sin. They won every battle that they sought God about. They only lost battles that they failed to seek God about. Are you winning or losing your battles? Because I think we know why. Is your confidence gone? I've just been corrected so much, Pastor, I think I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. Well... For some of you for sure silence is wisdom as the fortune cookie says it's better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt there are some foolish things that are said sometimes in this church but God's desire for you is not that you be silent it's that you be a carrier of his word I know your mama said if you can't say anything nice don't say anything at all but mama was wrong that's only half the truth If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all until you find God's word to speak. He will put it in your mouth so that you can speak it. The answer is not to withdraw, it's to engage. The answer is not to back away from the battle, it's to run into the battle. The church of the living God is not on the defensive from hell, it is on the offensive. If we are not advancing, then we are losing. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, this, on this rock, I will build the church, my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what that means? That means that in Jesus' vision, you, the church, are storming the gates of hell. You are attacking Satan. He is not attacking you. You are advancing against his kingdom. He is not surrounding and outnumbering you. You are on the offense. Joshua marches all night to meet these people in battle. He doesn't wait. Let me read it. He doesn't wait on anybody. Verse 9. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. You think only sin happens by surprise? You think only the devil can set an ambush for you? That's because you're on defense. You get on offense and people will be surprised at the word of God that comes out of you. You get on offense and you will take the enemy by surprise. He'll say, I have no idea she could do that. Yeah, well, keep watching. You have no idea what else I'm capable of. I look like an unclean animal, but I've got the honey of God in me. Church, we have got to figure out how to get on the offense. Some are stuck on the offense. It's hard to be on the offense when you're caught in the scandal of offense. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth and cut them down all the way to Azka and Machedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth uh, to Azka... The Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Somebody say that's a bad day for the enemy. I mean, you got to picture you are a heavyweight boxer in a ring with someone. And he had no idea that, that you had it in you. But you charged out of the corner. you starting to just wail on him. But in between, every punch that you throw, God slaps him twice. (laughs) Oh man, that's a good day. (laughs) The problem with most of us is our Christianity is defined by hiding. Digging a foxhole, trying to hold our trench. So we're surprised by what the enemy does. We're sitting back. Meanwhile, five kings are stealing our peace and our fellowship In our strength. They're robbing from us. We are supposed to be charging them. Sit back and wait to get offended with something that a brother is doing in church. It's hard to tell even what side you're on when you talk like that. How about we get on the offensive? See, Joshua's a book about the victorious, overcoming kind of faith that shows up in action. It didn't just cross the Jordan. It didn't stop there. It circumcised the whole nation. It didn't stop there. It went to battle with Jericho. It didn't stop at its first failure at Ai. It kept on moving. It was on the offense. Do you know why? They didn't have the whole land yet. Have you stopped short of the whole promise of God in your life? Have you stopped before you have all you're supposed to have? Did you find fault with the people around? With the thing is, pastors, it's them or they. No, the enemy does that. We don't do that. <coughs> your brothers are there to help you. You're there to help your brothers, not to be an excuse for why you can't achieve. <laughs> it's probably the most hurtful thing that is ever said to the pastors in this church. Somehow or another, we're the reason that you don't do well. <coughs> I'm pretty sure that I've been a stone that people have stepped on to get higher, but I don't think I've ever held anybody back. I don't know how you would do that since it's God who performs their calling. This is excuse-mongering from weak men. It's what it is. If what we did, though, is we said, Lord, I may not have been born a holy cow. I might be the unclean bee, but if you'd just give me a chance to spend some time around those kosher flowers. Man, if you let me glean it, I will take it, I'll feed your people, I'll go to war. I only got this one stinger and then I die. But I'm going to plant it well. In verse 13, maybe the most extraordinary event in the Bible happens. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. That is, it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. This showed something to the world. Number one, it is going to happen again in the book of Revelation. The signs in the sky are unbelievable in the book. The, The kings of the earth hide in caves to save themselves. And they can't. But the thing that it speaks to you and to me today. We said there's not enough time in the day to do all I've got to do. If you're doing what God tells you to do, He'll stop the sun if He has to. So, well, I don't have enough to overcome these enemies. No, He will rain down hailstones and kill more of the enemy than you can. There is, we are literally without excuse. If we will get on the offensive, do you know what the result is? We win. It doesn't matter whether the heavens have to obey you or the earth has to obey you. They will obey God's Word in you. You might be the only unclean animal on the planet that produces the clean honey of God's Word. It will obey you. My favorite part of this I skipped over quickly. You know what the Gibeonites said? How did they get Joshua in this battle? They said, come save us quickly. It's verse 6. It's what Hosanna means. Hosanna means save us quickly. The Gibeonites actually called out to Joshua. Save us. Help us. They're calling out The equivalent phrase of Hosanna in Hebrew. This is what the people were asking Jesus to do at the triumphal entry. Save us, save us, save us. But they're missing something and most of us are missing something. The way that He saves you is He leads you in battle. He does not do the battle for you. He does not save you from your situation you got a bad marriage, He will not save you from it. He will save you right through it. He does not do away with your circumstances. He changes you in the middle of those circumstances. I want to prove that to you. Here's how He hosannas. Here's how He saves them. This is what a real triumphal entry looks like. And Wednesday we'll talk more about a crucifixion. Verse 24. Are you all there? Now that you're there, let's go to 23. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, peace, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. The way that Jesus causes you to win is the same way that Joshua causes them to win. Jesus will lead you in the battle. He will put underfoot everything that has attacked you under His feet. He'll put them down. But then He will require you to put your feet where His have been. And if you don't, then every problem He fixes for you shows right back up the next week. Your pastors cannot do that for you. In Hebrews 2, 8 through 9, it says this, In putting everything under Him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. What has triumphed over Jesus? nothing what enemy has won over jesus not one in putting everything say everything Everything. in putting everything under him god left nothing that is not subject to him now the other half of the sentence yet at the present we don't see everything subject to him but we see jesus who has been made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory, honor and glory, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Oh, church, you may not have defeated the things that are stealing your peace. You may not have defeated the things that are stealing your fellowship, or hindering your calling, or stealing your strength, or robbing or killing your confidence, but he already has. And he is inviting you this morning to put your foot where his foot is. And the only reason that you wouldn't do it is pride. You would be scared that somebody would notice that your confidence had been gone and you were trying to regain it. That your strength had been gone and you were trying to regain it. That you had lost your calling and were trying to regain it. That you were out of fellowship and were trying to get back. That your peace was gone and you were trying to reconstitute it. Which begs the question, don't you think we've noticed already? And if we did notice those things, what do you think our response would be other than to rejoice that one was coming back into the fold? Oh man. If we as a body could grab hold of this phrase, Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Joshua himself demonstrates victory. Do you know why we call it triumphal entry? Because Jesus came to demonstrate victory. Victory says you receive the lamb in your house. Victory says you circumcise your hearts during the 10th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan. Victory says, whatever has to die that righteousness might prevail, it dies. Don't let pride win over victory. That's not sweet. That's an ugly defeat. And God wants you to have a sweet victory. What makes this the neat land of milk and honey is you expect the cow to produce milk. But in what world do unclean bees ever get to bring something as sweet as honey? in the land that God designed. He wants you to have a sweet victory today. And you're going to be left with a choice. You can walk out in ugly defeat or you can deal seriously with your sin, with your God, with the direction of your life and experience sweet victory. He will show you where to put every footstep You won't step on one king or two kings. You'll step on every king. Jesus Christ himself said, You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. Those things are easier to say than to do. But you can do them. Would you stand to your feet?